Let's spend perhaps three sessions, maybe more, but at least three sessions together on the second coming of Jesus Christ in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. It begins and ends with encouragement. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So this this entire teaching on the second coming of Jesus is intended to provide encouragement for one another, that we're to speak these words to each other encouragingly. And so Paul does it here. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers. We're going to inform you about all this. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep. We'll come back to that in a minute. Those who have died, that you may not grieve. That's the encouragement here. That you may not grieve at others who have no hope. So, Father, as we look at this, I pray that you would grant us to get great encouragement and be able to encourage each other so that we may grieve, but not as those who have no hope, but rather as those who have great hope. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read it. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by, the word, by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So all we have time for in this session is to talk about um, the meaning of sleep, the meaning of grief, and the meaning of no hope. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep. Who, who are those? What does fall asleep mean? Well, we know it means die, and we know that from verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, referring to those who have fallen asleep. But we might ask, uh, is Paul peculiar <laughs> in calling death a falling asleep? No, he's not peculiar. Here's Matthew 27, 52. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. This is common language. This is not unique to Paul. The saints, when they die, fall asleep, so to speak. Here's Jesus, who's puzzling his disciples by his language in John 11. After saying these things, Jesus said to them, that's Jesus. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. So they came and reported, Lazarus is sick. Come and help him. And he waits two days to let him die because he's going to raise him from the dead and get glory. But he says he's fallen asleep. 
but I go to waken him. <laughs> That's how easy it is for Jesus to raise the dead. It's like waking people from sleep. The disciples said, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them, Lazarus has died. Now, it's obvious then from the immediate context and from the wider context that those who have fallen asleep are believers who die. And probably the reason Christians were at home calling this a falling asleep is precisely because of the way Jesus talked in, in John 11, namely, I'm going to wake him up. I can do this. I, I can raise somebody from the dead who's been dead four days or four uh, decades or 2,000 years. I can, I can raise that person from the dead as easily as you can wake someone from sleeping. But here's the second question about this. Does this imply that those who have died are in a kind of soul Sleep. That's the language used by people who think there's no consciousness between the, the death of a believer and the second coming. No consciousness. The next instant a believer is conscious of is the second coming, and they're in a kind of soul sleep. Is that what Paul implies here? It's not. And we know it's not for several reasons. One is because in Philippians 1.22, he says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, living or dying, I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, die, and be with Christ. For that is far better. That's not a soul sleep. That's fellowship with the Lord as far better than the fellowship I have with him here. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Or here it is again in 2 Corinthians 5, 8. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's not soul sleep. This is a fresh, deep, wonderful homecoming when we are away from our bodies in death. We are at home with the Lord. So no, this word sleep here simply means it looks like they're sleeping when you look at them, and it's as easy for Jesus to wake them up from death as it is for us to wake them up from sleep. So Christians take heart. It's like sleep to Jesus. Grieve. I'm telling you these things, all these things, because I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. So here's the point. Christians may grieve, indeed ought to grieve, that is, weep, feel pain at the loss of precious family members and friends, right? We feel the loss. It's like an amputation of an arm or a leg, but... Our grief is more complex than worldly grief because our grief has mingled in it hope. And that's a very strange thing. It's a pain with a pleasure in it. Yes, it is. A sweetness that doesn't minimize the grief, but oh, seasons it with the sweetness of hope that they are with the Lord and that they are going to experience something stunning here that we're going to look at in the next uh, sessions.
Third, and lastly, what does this imply? No hope. Others who are not believers have no hope. It seems to me that clearly contradicts universalism. Universalism is the doctrine that everybody will be saved in the end. Sooner or later, everybody gets saved because God is a God of mercy. Paul says, no hope. No hope. Not a hope in a hundred years that the hell might get burned out of them in purgatory and then they all get saved. No, no hope. And we know that because he learned it from Jesus who said in Matthew 25, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. We know it from 2 Thessalonians, Paul's own teaching in the next letter in 2 Thessalonians 1, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. So this is the second coming with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Eternal destruction is what Paul has in mind here when he says no hope. So three massive truths already in verse 13. When Christians die, it is like sleep to Jesus. He can wake them up and they go to be with him in the meantime. Grieve. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. We weep. We may heave with sobs. I've tasted this. And hope be living powerfully, even joyfully in our heart while we sob. And third, those who have no hope really have no hope. There is only hope in Jesus. Next time, we're going to ask, what does it mean when he says, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep.